Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Nothing is Real, a Beatles podcast, is powered by Acast. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin. Dub the mic and the piano quite low because today we are talking about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the eighth album by the Beatles, or 14th if you were living in the USA at the time. And what can be said about this album that hasn't been said already? There have been books written about it. There's been documentaries made about it. There's even been a movie made about it, which we're not going to talk about. Um, But I personally think it's underrated and we've all forgotten how good it is. But I would say that. Stephen, are you a Sgt. Pepper fan? I am a Sgt. Pepper fan. Oh, good. So (laughs) that's why why I'm here today. Um, Yeah, it's not their best album. Okay. Um, It's certainly in the top five. Okay, so it's in the top tier of Beatles. I would, I, I, I mean... Top half. Something we would probably get into talking about later on is this notion that for a long time, Pepper was the best Beatles album and we were kind of told it was the best album mm. of all time, period. This was kind of yep. a sacrosanct fact. And that's kind of slipped away in the last, you know, 20 years or so that other albums have kind of slipped ahead of it. And I think there's a case to be made that it possibly is the best Beatles album. Well, it's Paul's best album, so I can see where you're coming from. <laughs> okay. But it's also, in some ways, it's kind of a pinnacle of their evolution and their uniqueness. I think so. I think, I think uh, for me, it's, it, it's, it's the peak in the sense of uh, the, their influence, um, their mastery of studio technique, um, uh, th- this idea that they were both reflecting what was happening that was going on around them in the culture, but also in some way leading the way yeah. or pointing the way forward. Well, they're kind of influenced by themselves on Pepper. You know, they're high on their own supply. They're they're kind of influenced by the possibility of yeah. what can happen. Whereas in the White Album and the later albums, you can kind of point towards, oh, you can see other things influencing them. But on Pepper, it's just like, no, this is them reaching a point almost by themselves. I think it's, uh, I think in that sense, in one sense, it is, it is a pinnacle and mm. that after this point, they're they're sort of moving away from from uh, sort of complete dominance mm. um, of of music, of culture, of art, yeah. of of Western sort of teen uh, uh, youth culture. That it's the moment at which I think that that it's the fact that it comes out in the middle of you know bang yeah. in the middle of, of of the year that this is the point I think at which. The focus of, of teen culture starts shifting from swinging London, yeah. which if you think of s- that phrase, swinging London, I, I, I always sort of 
there's that clip of Carnaby Street they always use <laughs> and people walking. But yes. it's it's really late 66, early 67 is swinging London. And yeah. by the time you get to the back end of 67, it's the west coast of America. Yeah. And it's a shift. It's a geographical shift. Yeah. Um, and the Beatles, I think, always are, are still there uh, at the top uh, uh, pinnacle. But... There are other types of music coming in, and we probably get on to this idea about pop music, rock music, yeah. and that, that fracture that comes around this time. But it does seem quite, to me, it's always quite a joyful or a happy album. I mean, Revolver, people talk about it being kind of a metallic album, or it's mm. quite kind of, you know, it's quite rough and hardened, whereas Pepper, is joy, joy in music is a hard thing to do, and there's a lot of happy things going on in Pepper. And it also kind of exists almost outside of the band sometimes. You can... Uh, yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, uh, people talk about the summer of love, but I think McCartney um, sort of doesn't use that phrase. He said it was a golden summer. Yeah, and there is just something it captures uh, a feeling, um, and it, as you say, it is. It's this kind of joyous sound. Uh, Revolver is a very clever album. Mm. It's a very knowing mm. album. Uh, there's I, a I, cynicism. To there is. Revolver. There's the, there's a kind of and that that's from from. Uh, for me, that starts with Paperback Rider yeah. and that song. Uh, th- there's something quite knowing and quite cynical about that. And the B-side, Rain, and uh, that sort of spills over into, uh, in, into Revolver. You're, I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think Sgt. Pepper is a, is a very sort of joyful album. It has moments, you know, George always there to... <laughs> the conscience. The conscience. Well, uh, slightly discordant or slightly uh, not entirely buying into yeah. the... Uh, uh, to the concept, um, but but yeah, I think I think it's a, it it has a unifying effect. Okay, so we're planning to do uh, this will be part one of two parts on Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So in this first part, we're kind of going to look at the chronology that got them into the studio and that got the album recorded, and uh, hopefully in the second half we'll kind of look at the album as it comes out in its afterlife. So. If we rewind back, a lot of people, you know, the the big thing about Pepper is that it's the studio album that they said goodbye to live performances. So you're kind of talking about their last, you know, this kind of starts on the 29th of August in Candlestick Park. The Beatles do their last show. They know it's their last show. The general public don't really know it's their last show. And what's interesting is that they're given a a chunk of time off after that gig on Mm. the 29th of August which they all do different things with and in in a parallel universe you could think well you know Epstein could have said listen take three weeks off get in at the end of September get the Christmas single down but that doesn't happen they they basically get three months off from the end of August to the end of November and this is this is their first period their first break Mm. their first holiday since the first album since the first single yeah you know they the, have the, a bit of a break at the start of 66 when yeah, the movie but, but, falls but through three, but that's kind but, of an accident but, but three months uh, you yeah. know where they're all they, they have time each of them has time to do something else to do to, to, to embark on another project yeah and so you know to break down those projects you know John goes off to Almeria in Spain and he takes on his role in the movie How I Won the War um, uh, Ringo doesn't really do a whole lot he goes out to join John for a bit of time in yep. Spain uh, George goes deeper into his he studies of India and goes off, off to India, India itself yeah. and Paul does a movie soundtrack yeah. with George Martin called the, the Family Way and How I Won the War is uh, interesting because it gives John isolation and in the isolation of Almeria he starts writing Strawberry Fields yeah um, so again this is this is He's completely separate from the others at this point. So he doesn't have McCartney to bounce lines off. And um, uh, I think Michael Crawford, who's in that film, he, he 
talks about and he has a book uh, everybody has a book um, <laughs> where, where he talks about sort of hearing the song develop and, and hearing very early versions of it which is just an acoustic uh, acoustic guitar and him yeah. working working his way through and we can hear that basic acoustic version on Anthology 2 there's a you know that bit where he says I can he do it I can he yeah, yeah. play the chords but there's definitely the, the root of the song is, is there and so John spends seven weeks in total in Spain from the 19th September to the 6th of uh, November in and around Almeria and then he comes back to London and incidentally the week he comes back to London is the first time he meets Yoko yes and he goes to her what was that show that was the You Are Here show was it at the Indica yeah yeah when he goes up the ladder and it says yes and all the rest (laughs) and eventually they get drawn back into Abbey Road and they return to Abbey Road on the 24th of November so as I said that's quite a long gap and it's also important because there's no particular pressure on them as we said they weren't asked to deliver a Christmas single and they weren't expected to deliver a Christmas album and in the background a collection of Beatles oldies is coming out as a compilation in the UK anyway yeah. so there will be some kind of Christmas product um, but then they go back in on the 24th and they start working on Strawberry Fields yes and so the difference I know we've talked about Strawberry Fields in our A Sides episode but what's interesting is this starts a very unusual process of them not getting the version of Strawberry Fields that's satisfactory for them Yes, I mean, I think this is really the first occasion in which they they completely remake something. Yeah. Uh, so they come up with the first version. Um, that seems to sort of be okay. They're, they sort of seem all right with that. Then there's a decision, no, no, we don't like that. And then they, they remake it. And I think this is the first time uh, that they have completely remade something mm. that they had recorded, um, where they go back. And um, again, I think this, this, this reflects... Uh, maybe not perfectionism but this idea that they can use the studio and the studio becomes an instrument yeah. uh, which is really picking up from where tomorrow never knows Yeah, uh, with tape loops and, and they're using the studio and just from a question of timeline it's worth reminding that the week they go in to start recording Strawberry Fields Forever it's four years since Love Me Do hit the charts <laughs> Lennon is 26 Ringo is 26 Paul is 24 and George must still be 22 then. Two. Yeah. Uh, so that's Sobering, yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is that if you if you think if you listen to Love Me Do and you listen to Strawberry Fields side by side, I mean that that doesn't sound like the same no. group. And that's you know people talk about what they did in seven years, but really mm. what they did in four years is yeah. quite is quite extraordinary. Um, and so they know that they are going to be in Abbey Road and they're kind of working to the the beat of their own drum. And between going in on the 25th of November and uh, breaking for uh, Christmas, they spend 10 days in Abbey Road. But they also do an interesting thing that the day after they come back on the 25th of November, they go into Dick James music and they do Everywhere It's Christmas, the Christmas single. Yes, yes. And it's interesting that we kind of think of the Beatles at this time as being very serious and beardy. And But you listen to Everywhere It's Christmas and it still has that kind of fab craziness, lunacy kicking in, you know. It is. They're still they're still tapping into that. The fans. That's what the fans <laughs> you want. want. There isn't really, I suppose, a, a sort of an indication there of what's about to happen. No, but but I guess what does happen, apart from them kind of leaving live performance, is that we we we, we kind of lose uh, a precious thing from the previous few years, which is the Beatles group interview or the press conference. Mm. This notion of them being together, being funny, being entertaining. They s- essentially stop doing television and they stop doing four-way appearances. Yes. And that's a big loss, I think. It is. I mean, if you if you look at the television appearances, um, 
uh, we, we, we sort of looked at this in, in a previous episode, sort of around the sort of Christmas episodes. Um, the amount of television that they do, yeah. um, both in terms of straight live performances from that, uh, uh, I suppose that's some other guy is what everyone thinks of in, in the cavern. And then you, they're appearing on the Mike and Bernie Winter show. They're appearing on the Morgan and Wise show. Um, uh, they're, they're doing press conferences. They're doing interviews. Uh, Suddenly, television is really what breaks them, and I think particularly in America, yeah. and they were very conscious of that. And there's almost a point here where they de- they, they've decided we've stopped touring, and we don't need TV anymore. We don't yeah. need to do that. Um, whereas I think those television performances have been very carefully orchestrated by Epstein as part of the the campaign yeah. uh, to, to break them in the UK and the US. But we really see kind of a petering out of the fourth and being silly. The only thing I can really think of them doing after this is when they're all dressed as wizards in Magical Mystery yes. Tour, which is kind of a silly, dumb thing. It's kind of four. I watched that again recently. <laughs> it's part of part of uh, what we're looking at here. And, and it reeks of Paul's idea. It, it does. It's, very, it's you know, it's very forced. It's it's not, a, it's not, whereas the press conferences in particular yeah. are, are just, it's the interplay and it's the speed and they're all playing one off against each other. Yeah. And looking at some of those press, press conferences, Ringo is actually the star frequently yeah. Yeah. Um, of those, particularly the American press conferences. And the press conferences in 66, although they'd been kind of dominated by the bigger than Jesus stuff, yeah. they're still, even though they're getting old and wise, they're, <laughs> they're still very, they're still being played for laughs. They are, and they're still a group. Yeah, they're still there's still that four four personalities and, and that interplay, and they're yeah. still being, if you like, marketed or presented, or they're still they're still presenting themselves as a group. Yes, and I think that is the shift. Yeah, with with Pepper. So back to Abbey Road pre Christmas, they spend ten days in the month before Christmas in Abbey Road, and they do basically four main versions of Strawberry Fields Forever, and we can now hear all those versions between the anthology and the Sergeant Pepper box set. There's the the gentle version, the band version, and mm. then there's the, the two versions that ended up getting edited together for the, the single. Uh, and the only other song they work on that time is When I'm 64. So when they break for Christmas, they've done a month's work and they have these two songs, which is not the most it's speedy like, way uh, no, of working. It's, it's, it doesn't bear comparison with our previous work rate. So the last session before Christmas is on the um, the 22nd of December when they edit together the two versions of Strawberry Fields so they speed one up, slow one down, find the other point and put it together. Uh, do you, whenever you hear Star- Strawberry Fields Forever, do you hear that edit every time? No. Do you not? No. Be- I, I, I've, <laughs> I've consciously, uh, because it's such a well-known story and because uh, it, it, it's something that I think I deliberately Ignore. Tune out. I, I, yeah. Okay. I, I could find it. I mean, I could, I could pinpoint it for you. But, <laughs> but when that, when I, I try not to. Uh yeah, to, to to hear it. Ever since ever since I read it in Lewison's sessions book years ago, it ruined like, that song. Here it comes. It doesn't ruin it. It's just part of the fun. Like it's part of the yeah. part of the story. So I won't reveal it here. But if you want to go off and you can find where the edit is between the two versions, Sergeant Pepper, go and uh, go and enjoy yourself. <laughs> but they again, having taken three months off, they don't take off a lot of time for Christmas because they're back on the twenty ninth of um, December. Uh, very important date. Very important date. Because uh, at that point, uh, Penny Lane is unveiled on the 29th of December, 20, or <laughs> 29th of December, 1966. Um and when do we know when Penny Lane was exactly written? Because Paul mentioned something about Penny Lane in '65 in interviews, like he likes the melody of the name. Yes, uh, I, 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 I don't actually know when this song comes into being. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, 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 there's this notion that um, in and around the time of Robert Soul, 
they're they're starting to think about uh, you know writing something about Liverpool or yeah. writing something about their childhood and there's, there's sort of uh, if you go onto the internet, you can find the original lyric to uh, "In My Life," which sort of name checks, you know, the, the bus stop and the yeah. crossroads, and the, uh, and it's almost like a bus journey. So back in '65, there was this notion of writing something, um, and I, I'm, I'm guessing that that has been kicking around in the background somewhere. Yeah. Why it didn't come come out specifically in uh, you know in the year your appear on Revolver uh, I don't know um, McCartney has sort of de- debunked the theory that Sgt. Pepper the album was was going to be about yeah. specifically about Liverpool or about childhood and he said no no that was never that was never the the concept yeah but was Penny Lane kind of forced into existence by Strawberry Fields because obviously Strawberry Fields is another part of Liverpool yeah I think I think I think that's the accepted story yeah. is that uh, in response to strawberry fields, um, you know, and, and they're, it's interesting. They're very. I mean, I know the double A side, but they are they are the flip side of each other. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's so um, they're so simpatico. It's quite yeah, striking. yeah. But it's very instructive as to how uh, about the different characters. So you've got Lennon, uh, the, this sort of slightly odd, discordant, mm. dark take. Uh, this sort of sense of isolation. No one is in my tree, and uh, you know, no one, no one thinks like me. McCartney, you have on the face of it a very bouncy, linear uh, uh, description yes. of, of, of what's happening in a particular street. But yeah. yet, when you look below that, there's very odd things going on in that song, yeah. in, in that lyric. And it's 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 uh, it's interesting because you know it kind of speaks to art in general because mm. you've been to Strawberry Fields and you've been to Penny Lane. And, you know, they are not necessarily places that are, you know, they're, they're, they've, they've kind of had something interesting foisted upon them because of these songs. Do you yes. know what I mean? You wouldn't necessarily think of them as being particularly poetic or amazing places. No, I mean, when I was standing outside the gates of Strawberry Fields, you, you know, <laughs> it's a gate. Yeah. And, you, you know, it's a gate. It, it has resonance because of the song. Yes. But it's not something that's inherently inspiring. I mean, it, it's... It's it's a point, it's a way in. I nearly said gateway. It's a, it, it, it's a gateway. <laughs> it is a gateway, I suppose. It is a gateway, literally, literally yeah. and metaphorically, <laughs> uh, in, in, to tap into those sort of childhood memories. But I think also childhood insecurities. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, I'm not. I'm you know always very reluctant to sort of. I'm I'm, I'm not a. Uh, psychologist, but, but <laughs> it, it is very interesting to to think. Well, what is what is coming out of that song yeah. about those those insecurities that 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 seem to be such a a key part of Lennon's uh, personality from yeah. from childhood all all the way through. Yeah. Um, and so, if we keep moving on, we get into 1967, and in January 1967. There are ten recording sessions in all. Again, the the, the it's not a very riotous pace of music but uh, on you know on January 4th they work on Penny Lane on January the 5th though it's a very momentous day it's Carnival of Light Day Carnival of Light Carnival of Light where they spend uh, the day making a 13 minute 48 second uh, sound collage that has become the sort of bane of existence of yeah. Beatles fans yes uh, I, I don't want to hear this song yeah I, 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 I think it's it's it, it's good to have something that is like a holy grail that, yeah. that, but you, that you, you're you never going to get yes you, you know um, and the, the sense of crushing disappointment when it finally is released <laughs> uh, will be overwhelming I, I, I think it 
it actually functions better as as a sort of mythical. Well, it is funny. It's been so long now. And I know that I've, mm. I've seen discussions online. People are like, oh, just release it. And if you don't want to listen to it, you don't have to listen to it. But that's not the point. It's actually become something else. It's, it's you know, by, by this, you know, by omission. Yeah. It's become a totem for a totally different thing. I think, that, I think that's right. I mean, it is it, it, it is this sort of lost, wonderful, magical yeah. and, uh, thing. And, and despite the fact that, you know, everyone, uh, you know, Mark Lewison has heard it. Yeah. And he not overly impressed. Yeah. It, it's sort of noise. I mean, you, you get little insights into descriptions of people who've heard it saying, oh, it's just chaos or it's Lennon running around shouting the word Barcelona for some reason. And, yeah. And, you think this is this is this is not uh, you know it, it has been compared very unfavorably to revolution number nine yeah uh which has has a degree of uh, of sort of thought or, or or sort of a construct yeah to it so no i i think it i think it's better unreleased i think uh, it, it, it's a tantalizing thing that yeah. we can we can dream about <laughs> and then as we walk through january you know they spend a lot of time on penny lane there's about five sessions further sessions handed over to penny lane um Probably the most famous one is on the 17th of January where uh, the piccolo trumpet gets dubbed on. Paul mm. has been watching uh, a Bach Brandenburg concerto on the television on the 11th of January and seeing the trumpet thinks that would be a nice sound for Penny Lane and then brings in uh, a session player. Dave Mason. To, exactly, to get uh, George Martin to put the score down and then try and play the highest note possible on the piccolo trumpet. Mm. Um, uh, and then once Penny Lane is completed, uh, the next song they work on is A Day in the Life. And A Day in the Life first appears in the studio on the 19th of January. And it's interesting because when people have done the research, the 4,000 holes in Blackburn Lancashire story was only in the newspaper two days earlier. Mm. So whether, you know, I don't think the song was written two days earlier, but it certainly must have only been completed two days earlier. Yes, uh, the, the lyrics are, 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 are being refined up to that point. Yes, and obviously the first verse refers to the Tara Brown crash that we discussed in a previous episode that happened at Christmas uh, 1966. So again, you know, Lennon is bringing in a different type of song to Penny Lane's. You know, he's trying to get to grips with, the, you know, what eventually he would become known for, these kind of deeply personal, mm. reflective songs, these kind of newspaper songs that he de- describes quite quite literally, you know. Well, the the uh, the Tara Brown crash, that was, the, he had died in December 66, but the inquest mm. was taking place and was being reported around that time in, ah, ju- right. in January. Um, so it was the the uh, the Daily Mail in January seventeenth of January nineteen sixty seven yeah. uh, was the, was the report of the inquest, um, and so the nineteenth and twentieth of January are spent getting a day in the life down. Um, but then the decision is made, and this is the the famous decision that the two songs are pulled, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever, for a double A sided single. And actually, if you look at the chronology, it all happens quite quickly. The the single. The two songs are mixed for single on the 25th of January for release in February. Um, and so the next thing the Beatles do is they go off to make their Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields Forever clips. Um, mm. So they're up in Seven Oaks in Kent on January the 31st doing the Strawberry Fields Forever clips. And then on February the 5th and February the 7th, they're in Stratford and Seven Oaks again doing um, material for the, the, the Penny Lane clip. And it's interesting that we, you know, we think of these things as you know, a very strident part of the Beatles' history, but it's it's all happening very quick. It's all quite thrown together. I'm, I'm not sure who storyboarded the Beatles 
videos at those 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 two videos at that time they they seem to be a little bit ad hoc. The, yes, I mean sort of this random uh, horse riding through bits of London and yeah. uh, presumably they couldn't get the horses up to Liverpool to, to <laughs> Penny Lane but uh, well, couldn't get the Beatles up to Liverpool at yeah. that point uh, and as I've pointed out before it does uh, it does start the trend of people having a four course dinner in a, in in a forest a field, setting in, in a, a field, field which is a 1967 trope yeah. uh, go look for it elsewhere um, but it means though that you know things kind of change around this point because they've only they've been in the studio for two and a half months and two of the four songs that they've worked on have been taken away so they're basically left with when I'm 64 and A Day in the Life, which aren't even finished. And uh, so they've, they've two kind of half finished songs and still no album. And what's interesting is, you know, for February and March, they really kind of kick into overdrive. And this sort of narrative that the Beatles were carefully crafting everything in the studio, honing away. Some songs come out very, very quickly mm. in, in this period. It's like they it's like, OK, we've done the studio experimentation thing. Let's just get on with it. Um, and so they start working quite quickly again. And, and probably, you know, in, in February, in the 28 days of February, they have 16 sessions. And uh, across February, they'll introduce six new songs in those 16 sessions to the Sgt. Pepper album. And the first one is the Sgt. Pepper title track, um, of which they start working on on the 1st of February. And I guess that changes everything. It gives them something to hang the album on. I think so. This is this is this is where the, the sort of the concept, the loose concept of of the Beatles being not the Beatles, yeah. of, of being something else, and um, uh, it sort of flows from that. So I think this is the point at which they, they Paul and it, let, let's be clear, it, this album is very much dominated by Paul at this stage. Mm. Um, you know, he has the notion of a sort of alter ego for the band. He comes up with the the, the title track. Um, he is driving it forward. Yeah. Um, he is probably of all, probably about it, he is definitely the one who is closest to uh, George Martin in the studio. Yeah. Uh, the most interested in the, in, in the studio production side of things. And the story goes that he's on a plane with Mal Evans and yeah. Mal Evans, one of them asks to pass the salt and pepper and Paul says... Sergeant Pepper, Sergeant Pepper, and then yes, Mal doesn't know what S and P mean on the uh, Cruet oh. set, supposedly. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't know. I mean, I think that 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 seems. Oh, you think he'd be a man of the world? Uh, by you'd that think point, he'd be a man Mal of the world by that point. But uh, but yes, this is this this is this is supposedly the idea. And McCartney says, "Oh, you know, at this stage, and uh, the Big Brother and the Holding Company, and uh, these these, these kind of fanciful." Um, so, so he comes up with this idea of Sergeant Pepper, and the idea being, well, that would allow you to write a song for that band. Yeah. You don't have to write a song as the Beatles or for the Beatles. You can write a song for this other band, and we can pretend to be somebody. Else. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And listening to the title track on the box set, you kind of, um, you, you notice that, first of all, it's striking that they're playing it live, essentially. Yes. With a live yes. vocal, uh, because we're kind of told that this album's a studio concoction, but actually they're, they're you know, for a band who are sort of supposed to be post-live, they're playing it live. You know, George's guitar fills are very in tune with the, yep. the song. He's certainly totally engaged. And it does kind of rock because I think with the overdubs of the horns and the you, you kind of miss the band play underneath. And the, 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 the naked version on the box set makes you realise that actually it's quite a tight little tune. It is. I mean, I think that was one of, that was one of the big surprises uh, for, for me in the box set was you sort of think, well, if that four piece had gone into the... Savile Theatre and and, yeah. and played that they, they they could have given the Who a run for their money. I mean, yeah. they, they, it's it's a really kind of hard rock sound that they're playing as the basic track. Yeah, and you kind of um, have the Hendrix Cream thing creeping yeah. into the sound of London at and, that time. And I think that's the thing; it's reflective of that mm. that, that this kind of harder power edge, rock kind power, of thing. Yeah, this sort of power trio was, was coming to the fore. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, you, you you sort of have the sense of always had the sense of Sergeant Pepper being, as you say, very carefully constructed and layered and layered and layered. And obviously that did happen. Mm. And bass parts were wiped and put back on. And they, but the core the core band they 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 were they were a good band, Paul, good little <laughs> a band, good little band. band yeah. Paul, <laughs> so as we walk through February, you know, uh, a day in the life gets Paul vocals and Ringo's drums. Uh, good morning, good morning appears on February the eighth. Fixing the hole appears on February the ninth. Recorded at Trident, so they're working quite quickly. Uh, and then on February the tenth, they have the a day in the life orchestra recording, which is obviously another pivotal moment. Mm. And again, you, you listen to the the bare bones version of A Day in the Life without the orchestra on the box and then you listen to it with the orchestra they must have been very happy with that day's work when they listened back to the tapes at the end of the day it's yes I mean I think it, this, 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 this idea of just a, a sort of cacophony of sound yeah. that, that they had deliberately left gaps to be filled with something yeah um, and uh, you get this sort of rather lofty notion that McCartney says at one point about, uh, you know, marrying classical music and, 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 and popular culture. Yeah. And I suppose that that's reflective of, of this idea that, well, anything is possible. Yes. And if anything is possible, the people that, who can deliver it are the Beatles. And it's interesting because when they were recording yesterday, like 18 months or whatever earlier, you know, George Martin had said, well, you know, Paul, I think we could put an orchestra on this. Yeah. Paul was like, no orchestras, no, no yes, way. Yes. And now it's like, yeah, let's get an orchestra and let's quadruple track it so it sounds like four orchestras. And if you listen to the just the orchestral overdub on the box set as well, you can hear, particularly at the end, um, what you might always appreciate is the first couple of bars of that are, are scored, the kind of the yes. wavy bits. Yes. Uh, and then the, the, they were told in group to roughly at certain yes. bars hit certain notes but, so that they would end up how you get note. there is up to you yes yeah. uh, and so you know the musicians would kind of look at each other and, and follow each other and obviously the recording of that is documented in the A Day in the Life video so there's lots of the good and the famous the knocking beautiful around people. beautiful people uh, particularly Michael Nesmith of course having deep conversations that's the best bit obviously um, but then after they record Day in the Life Orchestra on February the 13th February the 14th they start recording George's song for the album which is only a northern song 
The Great Lost Classic. The Great Lost Classic. Great Lost. So this is George's contribution to Pepper and obviously doesn't end up on Pepper. Yes. Uh, so let's talk about that. Well, could we say not only does it not end up on Pepper, it doesn't end up on the Pepper box. Set, yes. Yes. Which I think that that's I know I'm 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 you know George's advocate here, but I, it <laughs> seems to me very odd that yes. that the, the that a song recorded right in the middle of those sessions does not end up on the box set. I would agree with you. I think across the three box sets, you know, they're a little bit inconsistent about what gets on and what doesn't get on. You mm. know, so something like Goodbye gets on the Abbey Road box set. <sighs> Lady Madonna gets onto the White Album box set. I think, I definitely think only a Northern song should have been there because it's a great track. There's yep. some interesting things to hear there. You know, we're not saying it's on Sgt. Pepper, but we're saying it's part of the general... It's, it's, it's part of the creation of the album. Yes. Uh, in the same way that Strawberry Fields and, yeah. and uh, Penny Lane. So it's part of, and it's, it, it is the only song from those sessions that doesn't make it, isn't it? There's yeah, no other I, song I, that, I, that, that, I, that, that gets dropped. No, I mean, it's, it's up there with Carnival of Light. It's this yes. Carnival of Light <laughs> and o- only a Northern song. And uh, I, I wonder, is that a kind of quid pro quo? So do you think it was the right decision to, okay, I guess the options are Pepper comes out and the George song is only a Northern song. Pepper comes out and it has two George's songs, only a Northern song and Within You Without You. Or Pepper comes out with Just Within You Without You. What are your takes on those I, possibilities? I, I, I think they could have squeezed another George song on. I don't think there's another Beatles. There's a Beatles album out there that couldn't benefit from another George song. <laughs> but no, no, but seriously, I, 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 I don't understand why it was considered... You know, lacking in something that sort of musically, I can understand it. Perhaps it is a very it is a very sour yes. song. I mean, this is a, this is a continuation of George complaining about uh, you know the, the songwriting arrangements. It's about maybe it was thought you can't be complaining about your royalty rate. You're really criticizing. Well, we talked about the album ourselves. being a joyous album, yes, and it kind of takes you outside of the Beatles, and it doesn't meet those criteria. It's no. not really like I, I love the song, but it's not really joyful, and it's very much about being I am George from the Beatles, and here's my beef. Yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, but but when when you read the descriptions about uh, why it didn't get on, it was it, it's George Martin saying, well, I thought it was a weak yeah. song. It was a weak. I, I absolutely accept it doesn't it doesn't hit those two main criteria. So yeah. from that point of view, uh, I, I, I can see why it's not on the album. Mm. But um, it's got that bonkers Paul bassline. I wonder did George like that or not like that? Yeah, I, 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 I just think this is this is this is just a kind of classic <laughs> Harrison uh, song. Uh, you know, it's got discordant things in it. He always had a sort of slightly left field, slightly sour take. Yeah. And, and what he said at the time was he was persuaded. Uh, whenever he started writing, he was persuaded to sign with uh, Dick James yeah. to sign up to Northern Songs. Then what happens is they float that company and uh, Paul and John get 15% uh, of the company and George gets 8%. So suddenly he realizes Paul and uh, John are getting more of his songs yes. than he yes. is. Yeah. And uh, I mean, at one point, you know, he goes on to give interviews much later in his career about, you know, it was basically it was theft. And I was this naive uh, kid that signed up and basically I was completely ripped off. And he has no time for Dick James whatsoever, simply because he suddenly realizes he's a minority shareholder and he's not getting as much. He writes a song and John and Paul and, and other people, the other shareholders are getting more money than he is. Um, so, yeah, so possibly, though, I think the better song won out and we'll come on to Within You Without You in a second. But if we keep on going through February, um, 
Mr. Kite appears and the effects session for Mr. Kite where they yep. take all these pipe organs, chop them up, throw them up into the air, stick them together and overdub them on to give that lovely uh, circus sound. Um, they finish A Day in the Life. So if, again, if you listen to the box set, you hear the original humming ending, which is what they wanted to do, where they just all hum. Yeah, and that, then doesn't, that doesn't work. It doesn't work it at really all. It really doesn't work. <laughs> uh, but then they realise that they needed the, the piano chords. So it is interesting that A Day in the Life kind of comes together. We think of it as one big thing, but it comes together in three very separate ideas. Uh, and then they record Lovely Rita and uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Uh, Lovely Rita, I'm going to stop on for a sec, because I think that's a really overlooked song. You I, love this song. I love Lovely Rita because I think people think, oh, geez, it's kind of trite. But there's actually a ton of melody happening in, in Lovely Rita. There's lots of interesting ideas. And there was a there was a, a clip I saw on YouTube a few years ago, and we can put a link up here on the, the, the website or whatever, on Twitter, um, of a guy doing a, a, an acoustic guitar cover of Lovely Rita. And you kind of realise that the song has an awful lot of things happening in it in terms of melody and structure and solos and, uh, you know, very Paul. It is very Paul and also the, the kind of the noises but even the little small details like where you know I got the bill Rita paid it yeah. that kind of stuff I find you know it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a song that has its own inner structure and world no? Yes? Yeah it's, 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 it's one of those songs that, that, that I think it's there it's, there. it's a yeah. nice kind of uplifting song but I don't, I don't think there's much to it um, okay. that's, that's I mean I, I you know yeah, it's 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 it's, it's one of, you know I would bracket it. It's it's like hello goodbye. Okay, I think it's a kind of it's an uptempo bouncy song. I think it's got a clever lyric, but for all of that, I yeah. I, I, I think it is just yeah. There was a traffic warden and yeah. I suppose okay. I, I think I think in terms of arrangement, it's got an interesting arrangement. It's got the acoustics. It's it's, it's got a very good sense of mixing and echo and you know the kind of the the, the kind of the. Uh, vocalizing at the end of it is quite striking as well. You, you know that there is a, a, a rumor that David Crosby appears on that. Track? Oh, really? I did not know that. Well, tell David, me more. David, David, David Crosby, whose um, memory can be trusted one hundred percent. It can be trusted one hundred percent. David Crosby. I have to say, David Crosby has never claimed okay. to, to be to be um, uh, to, to to be on that track. But David Crosby was certainly in the studio when that was being done and when the backing vocals were being done. Um, and uh, there are photographs in the Beatles book of of David Crosby uh, all gathered uh, uh, around a microphone. So you've got Lennon, McCartney, Harrison and Crosby all right. standing around a microphone. Yes. So they were doing something. Yes. Now, Crosby has never said that he sang on it. He's certainly talked about being there and being blown away by the session. Um, but there is another... Uh, a uh, singer of whom I'd never heard called Sean Phillips, uh-huh. uh, an American um, sort of folk singer, I think, who was also there that day. And he has given an interview in which he was said, he and David Crosby were told, right, come on, uh, get around the microphone and uh, uh, and sing backing vocals. So if anyone can break that down, can, we can demix that uh, and get a David Crosby or this other chap. Uh, Sean Phillips. Sean Phillips. Well, let's break down while we're, while we're on... Um uh, discussions we mentioned a day in the life and lovely Rita. Let's talk about who does the as in a day in the life. One of the Beatledom and fandom <laughs> most uh, vexing questions. So the thing we're talking about is somebody spoke and I went into a dream, and then the as that come in after a day yes. in the life. 
And people cannot decide whether it is John or whether it is Paul. And for many years, I just assumed it was John. Mm. And I have switched my opinion to actually think that it is Paul. And you've probably helped helped make me transition over to thinking that it's Paul. Yeah. Yes, I I always assumed it was Paul. Yeah, I know. I always uh, assumed it was John. It's 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 odd because they do. I mean, they they do have very different voices. Yes. But occasionally, uh, there's just where they just seem to to be indistinguishable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I, I I always assumed that that was the case. Well, um, the, the two things that kind of tipped me over is if you go to the box set and you listen to the original versions of A Day in the Life, John yeah. isn't doing that. You hear yes. John's vocals and Paul's vocals are missing. Yes. So you think, oh, that's interesting. So maybe this is Paul. But the other thing is that noise that Paul makes at the start of Lovely Rita, uh, where he goes, ah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's that, like It's like having Paul here. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's, uh, that is the same kind of extemporization that you hear yes. in a day in the life. So I'm like, yes. oh, that is Paul. Yes. That, 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 that a lovely Rita thing is what mm-hmm. made me mm-hmm. change my mind. Okay. But maybe people we, can argue with us on people can Twitter write, and Facebook. Yeah, and send in a postcard. To W12AQT uh, and tell us what they think. Um, so the, the album is gathering a pace and then in March they really are trying to get the album over the line. There's 18 sessions in March and they get five new songs out. Uh, there's also a lot of mixing that starts going on so they start to try and bring the album together so the new songs that appear is they, they, they finally get down Loosing the Sky with Diamonds uh, Getting Better uh, and then Within You Without You Within You Without You is the best song on the album well I think it's uh, I would say as a teenager listening to Sgt Pepper it wasn't my favourite moment no. now listening to Sgt Pepper I think it is my favourite moment yes. and I think the 2017 stereo remix of Within You Without You is just a glorious it's a staggering staggering that, 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 that you'll not be surprised that when I got the remix that was the first song I went to <laughs> of course um, but I, I do think that is the one, of the, one of the tracks that, that benefits most from the, uh, the remix yeah it's, it's, it's fantastic and a lot of people talk about it as you know putting it with Olya Northern's song Within You Without You it, you know people have said it's the conscience of the album it's the spiritual side of the album and I think it taps into I think the better song won. Oh, for, for, uh, yes. For I think, getting on the album. And I think it really, you know, g- gives Georgia very great status on the album. I, th- I think un- un- undoubtedly so. Uh, and I think the other the other thing, it, it, in, in the same way that Strawberry Fields gives you an insight into sort of where Lennon was yes. in his mind yes. or in his head at that particular time this this is this is uh, you know completely lays out where George is at, at this particular yeah. time the very fact that there's no other Beatle on the track yeah. uh, that he is completely uh, immersed in in sort of Indian music he's just come back from uh, say September he was uh, 66 he's he's in India with with Ravi Shankar learning how to hold yeah. a sitar you know sure. that was pretty pretty much the first lesson um He's he's not he doesn't play a lot of guitar. Yes. Uh, on this album, most of those guitar lines on on Pepper on McCartney. Right. Uh, Harrison really is, is sort of uh, absent, or not doing not doing lead work. Certainly on Paul's songs, and it's one of those sort of you know Ringo famously says, "Oh, I what did you do during Sergeant Pepper? I learned how to play chess." <laughs> Both he and George have commented uh, on the fact that it was a different way of recording. There was a lot of overdubs once they got those basic tracks laid down. There wasn't much for either of them to do. Yeah. Um, 
so the, the the flip side of that is it, this is George working very closely with George Martin, and I I, I think the, the the score for within you without you is is really striking as yeah. well. And again, it's this this mix in the same way that we talked. I, I mentioned McCartney saying you know you've got classical music and, and and rock music or pop music in a day in the life. This is George presenting Indian music to a Western audience in a way that is yeah. an easy way in. But you're right in saying that it, it, it is his version of Strawberry Fields because it's mm. this balance of the intensely personal and the overwhelmingly universal, which yes. is a difficult thing to pull yes. off. Yes, and it's not something, I mean, uh, you know, George sometimes can come across as being very preachy. Uh, you know, I suppose there's an element of that in these lyrics, but I, I, I think the song as a whole, and it's a long song. Yes. Uh, and you know it it opens the second side yeah um so you think it's it's a bit of a diner yeah uh, you know you flip that album over whenever you first hear it and it's all been very up and poppy and joyous yeah. and wonderful and then suddenly you've got this long indian uh piece and i i, I think it's quite striking that they they chose to open the second yep. side with that you know? um, and then bounce back from that uh, Paul does She's Leaving Home is the next song recorded and George Martin doesn't score that it's Mike Leander who scores it yeah and for me uh, one of the, one of the things that, that was very striking on the box set is uh, the orchestral score yeah I really don't like that at all for She's hear, Leaving Home yeah when yeah. you hear it on its own it is kind of sickly sweet it's like film music it's like it's just, just yeah, it's the, the, very overwrought. Yes, yeah. yes. But I actually, if you if you really uh, kind of held my feet to the fire and said, "What's your what's the best the best song?" Yeah, on Sergeant Pepper, I would probably say she's leaving home. Would you? Yes. Interesting. Um, the other interesting thing in the box set is that that little bar of music that Paul edited out at the end of every chorus. Yes, which is a really strange thing. It's just these. Uh, it's like five notes. And it's a very small change, but it was the right decision to make. It's yeah. very interesting. No, what, what, what I what I like uh, about She's Leaving Home is uh, is that it's you've got Lennon and McCartney writing yeah. together. Yeah. You know, it's a Paul song. Yeah. Uh, but you've got Lennon singing the, the sort of the counterpoint, um, and they did that. As I understand it, they they did that live. You know, so they're they're. Just like we are today, uh, <laughs> Mike you know, on Mike, Mike on Mike, facing each other, and uh, they, they, plus it's an incredibly sensitive uh, lyric. Yes. So one of my my theories is that uh, Sergeant Pepper was really the pinnacle where they uh, of the Beatles having this oh, cross cross generational appeal. Yes. appeal. And if, if you think of other songs that were being written at that time about the generation gap, about that conflict between, uh, you, you know, the parents who, who sort of come through the war and the teenagers that really didn't know they were well off type of attitude. Um, no one else is writing a song as sympathetic yeah. to both sides. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got the Stones writing Mother's Little Helper. You know, you, you know it, it's they had taken a side. Yes. Uh, and that's what I think you, you would expect uh, from the, the Stones or the Kinks or the, the Who, most strikingly, you know, my generation. You're taking a side and you're lining up with the kids. And it's a song based on a true story. Yes. And based on a true story of someone who'd actually coincidentally met the Beatles or met it's, Paul. It's a weird, it's a completely weird uh, coincidence. I mean, yeah. This is one of the things that was say, say that... It's like the Eleanor Rigby grave, you know? Yes, it, it's... it's uh, 
constantly throughout the Beatles' career, there are these weird uh, coincidences um, yeah. that pop me up. But yeah, this 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 was a girl. I'm trying to remember her name, Melanie Coe. Yep. Um, and uh, she was in the paper as having run away. You know, she was missing, and and and, and uh, uh, but it turned out she she uh, actually had been presented with a prize uh, in a, yes. da- a dance competition. <laughs> yeah. uh, years years before. Y- y- you you, you can't point. make it up. Um, but uh, so yeah, there's, there's a whole sort of backstory uh, there. And there's two songs left to be recorded for the album. So right at the end of March, they record with a little help from my friends, and at the first of April, they record the reprise of um, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band for the end of the record. I think with a little help from my friends, kind of comes along because they don't have a Ringo song, mm. and I think with a little help from my friends might be the best Ringo Beatles song. Yeah, I think that's. I uh, think that's. I think it it uh, it works fantastically in the album because it introduces him as a character as Billy Shears. It's got him interacting with the the Beatles on backing vocals. He hits that fantastic high note at the end that he didn't expect to <laughs> hit even himself. Yep, and it's a it's it's a it's a lovely song. It is, and what, if you go to the Hunter Davies biography, yeah. Uh, he that he has a very nice little description of that song being written, mm. uh, where where there's a Paul and Paul and John are sitting in John's house, coming up with this and they're sort of struggling over the 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 lyric. Yeah, um, and they're sort of soliciting uh, contributions. And the, the the story about the recording on the on the uh, the evening is that they worked sort of all through the evening to get this backing track down. And uh, Jeff Emmerich recounts. You know, the session was finished. Ringo was trudging up the stairs uh, to the control room. He gets about halfway up and Paul calls him back and says, no, no, where are you going? He said, no, no, it's finished. And No, no, you have to come back and do the vocal. And he said Ringo was always very nervous about doing the vocal. So they sort of sprung it on him that he thought he was going to come back in the next day or the day after. And they decided, no, uh, you're going to do this now. And he really didn't want to. But then. John and George sided with Paul and yeah. clearly they, they, they sort of all ganged up and um, uh, they were all sort of standing around and Everett gives this very sort of touching uh, description of them all standing around while he did the vocal and Paul kind of encouraging him to go for that big note. Uh, that big note at the end. You know, Paul was saying they have to write had to write in a key that was suitable for Ringo. Yeah. They had to keep it within a certain range, range. But there is that sort of leap at the end and they were sort of encouraging him to... Uh, to, to do it and he, and he does it fantastic yeah. but it's interesting that the last two songs recorded with a little help from my friends and the the the, the, the short reprise of Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band these are the songs that are segued to other songs in the album that kind of give it its conceptual theme and mm. yet they're kind of added in at the end it's it's odd that you know you know these things weren't there. The things that make Sergeant Pepper a concept album, I think, are the fact that Sergeant Pepper goes into with a little help from my friends, uh, yeah. and the piece goes into a day in the life. The other stuff is kind of yes. Academic. I mean, it's, 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 it seems to be this notion of you know we had the Beatles had stopped touring, mm. so you can go. They to sat it. down on day one and said, "Here's the plan. Here's the plan. Here's the plan. You can you can listen to this album, and it's like going to a gig. So you've got the overture, you hear the orchestra." And we just run through an entire concert, and there you go. And um, I, I suppose, in theory, they could have put applause, or they could have uh, linked every song with applause, or yes. faded one into the other. But I mean, it's sort of a, yes. The first two songs and the last two songs really are the concept. What make it? They're the yeah. bookends. And speaking of Ringo, his drumming is fantastic on it. His snare is fantastic on it. But on that second version of Sergeant Pepper, particularly the mono version. 
that intro drum and bass and you hear in the rehearsal yeah. takes Paul say give us some of that bass drum yeah, come on come yeah, on come on yeah. it's probably the best noise that Ringo ever made that uh, boom cha, that it yes, right at the start and, and is, it, is is, it is this idea that, that uh, you know you just had such a fantastic rhythm section yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in Paul and Ringo so what that means is like from the you know for the first two months from November to the end of January they were left with two songs for the album and then from February, March and at the start of uh, just that first day of April they get the rest of the album down they get another 11 album another 11 tracks done very very quickly and so all that's left is for the album to be uh, mixed and a tiny little extra bit of recording uh, the, the the bit of nonsense at the end of the album the run out groove mm. gets recorded on the 21st of uh, April and that run out groove nonsense isn't on the American Pepper no no uh, when you first listened to Pepper were you surprised by the run out groove or did you know about it or I did you I think from memory I think I knew it was there right um, and I do remember winding it backwards <laughs> oh I did you yes did you hear anything naughty yes oh did you yes I, I haven't done that myself yes I, I, uh, I, I, I recommend <laughs> I recommend <laughs> I recommend that people people uh, try I, I I heard somebody on a a, a rival podcast that I'm sure what? no one no there one, are other Beatle podcasts that, that no one listens to saying oh I winded back and sure enough my, imagine my surprise where it says you know Paul is dead or Paul is dead I think that's not what it that's says that's not what it that says that is not it what says it something said. very naughty indeed apparently yeah. um, I didn't know it was there the first time I listened to Pepper and I had an, an auto lift up record player okay. because it was the 80s it was an upright record player as well oh, of course and uh, so I'm leaning over to turn it off thinking well that was a good album and literally this blast of noise comes on for a second and it freaked me out. <laughs> it, it just was this, like, it literally as I was touching the button, it was almost as if say, don't touch the button. And then, uh, so I, I. And then, and then of course there is the dog whistle. Yes, the, 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 the high I've never heard the, noise. I've never heard the dog whistle. My I, hearing is so bad, I can't hear it. I think I used to hear it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now I don't hear it anymore. Um, so that's the, the, the linear story of how the album gets recorded and put together. You know, it's not the, the big, concept, the concept kind of evolves naturally over the, the four months or so that they are putting the album together and, and yeah. this spin-off single comes out in between. Um, but what we might do is we might press pause there for part one of our discussion on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And we're going to do a part two where we're going to look at the album coming out and its afterlife and what does it all mean. Um, but that's going to, all going to happen in part two. Uh, for the moment then we're going to sign off from Nothing Is Real uh, you can catch us in the usual places we're on Twitter at BeatlesPod you sign off there again your, your, vo- <coughs> your voice croaked as you went real oh did it okay just your sign off so where will I go to um, but that'll be on the next episode of or three two so that'll be on the next episode of Nothing Is Real uh, you can catch us in all the normal places we're on Twitter at BeatlesPod there's a Facebook group so do a search for us on Facebook and uh, Stephen will let you in and don't forget to like and subscribe and, and, and leave uh, uh, nice reports wherever you download your podcasts uh, but until the next time I'm Jason Carty I'm Stephen Cockroft and this has been Nothing Is Real thanks for listening Nothing Is Real is powered by Acast Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, Nothing Is Real Pod. Dot com.